I am so happy to welcome you to this very special episode of Awake at Night, our podcast about people who go out of their way to help refugees. I'm Melissa Fleming, and I'm the spokesperson for UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. Today, it is an incredible pleasure and honor to have Kate Blanchett with me, one of the finest screen and stage actors of her generation. Born in Australia, she is an Oscar-winning actor and the mother of four children. And she also dedicates herself to refugees and stateless people as Goodwill Ambassador for UNHCR. Kate, welcome to Awake at Night. Thank you. What made you decide to help refugees? And, you know, was there a moment or an encounter that you can remember that made you decide to take action? Well, I think you've said it right there. I'm the mother of four children. And, I mean, it's interesting, this this podcast is called What Keeps You Awake at Night. And um, I'm, I tend to do most of my thinking at night. And um, the provocation of the title of this podcast, I did ask myself what keeps me awake. And I think it's the sense of the future. I think I'm, I, I'm, when I'm awake in the middle of the night, I think about the future of my children, their hopes, their dreams. It's, it's often a time when you can free associate. And increasingly over the last decade, what has preoccupied me is how fragile the future seems. And I've been thinking about, um, you know, you have to be optimistic. It's a, it's a great act of optimism, I think, at the moment to have children when the, the future seems so under siege. And I started thinking about other children, other parents who had children perhaps in less privileged situations than, my, you know, than my own children find themselves in. And being an Australian, uh, a country that's been, I think, very positively built in a lot of uh, respects on on immigration and the contribution of refugees, I I found the discourse around children in peril, uh, refugee children in peril, was confoundingly negative. And uh, the more I investigated that and interrogated that, often in the middle of the night, the more I thought... I wanted to uh, engage not only my any spare time I had um, and, and energy I had as a storyteller, as an actor, as someone in the, the public profile who perhaps has a platform on which to discuss things which are complex and, and nuanced, but I also wanted to engage my children in that so that they they twinned their own sense of the future with the future of children less fortunate than themselves and, and their hopes and dreams. So I suppose that's a very long-winded answer to well, your question. Well, no, but you actually you answered a number of questions that I was going to ask you uh, towards the end of this podcast, exactly, you know, what does keep you awake at night. So, um, But, oh, there's many more things to keep me awake at night. I've, <laughs> the list I'm is sure, long. But that is, that is a big <laughs> one. And you made a decision, actually, to involve your family and particularly your children in this cause, and you've actually traveled with... I believe both of your sons, or uh, two of your sons, with Iggy, uh, who's now ten, on the second mission I went uh, to Jordan with UNHCR, and it was his birthday, and we were in the process ourselves of moving from one country to the next, and it just aligned that that he was the one. The other children were in school and and much further advanced in their education, whereas he we felt he could he was portable. And he, so he came with us to Azraq and, and, and Zatri, and it was quite a profound experience for him 
because it's these it's, are just paint the picture because these are refugee camps, very barren in yes, Jordan. Two camps, quite different camps mm. in in Jordan. Um, you know, unlike the mission we went on in in Lebanon, where the refugees are in an urban setting and perhaps in a way more fragile because it's harder for, for them to seek and access help and that's where UNHCR is so wonderful in in building those bridges for them but in Jordan of course you have two camps and one of them is completely barren it's almost like a, a moonscape and Iggy thought we were sort of uh, in the desert and he couldn't believe that anyone was surviving there and then we, we came across all of these tents and he was quite the interesting thing about children and watching him move through that experience is the synapses haven't connected. Um, so there's a kind of this trench of curiosity that still exists in children. And we had this extraordinary lunch with a, a, an extended family. They'd been in the camp for quite some time and they had there were many children. And they, they went all out and they gave everything they had to put on this extraordinary lunch for us, which Iggy took it in his, it was a bit like a Sunday lunch at our place, except that we were on the ground, and um, obviously we hadn't been to a supermarket, and he was wondering, looking at the desert landscape, where they had found all of the fruit, all of the vegetables, and I said, well, this is, this is everything they have, and they're sharing it with us. And one of the boys was going out the back to play soccer, and there was a 13-year-old boy, very, very engaged, very cheery, but he didn't go out to play. And Iggy, who's quite an inclusive, excitable young boy, he said, well, why, why doesn't he want to play? He's the same age as his older brother. And, and, um, and I said, oh, I, he's, he's got a wound in his foot. And he said, oh, what's wrong with it? It doesn't matter. We can just, he can throw the ball. And what had happened, I, I explained to him, is that he had shrapnel in his ankle. And it, he said, what, from a bullet? And he, and then he said, "Yes, as he was, he was shot on their journey here." And he, the colour just drained out of his face, and you could see him trying to put those pieces together. And then later on, um, I were out uh, in a one of the UNHCR jeeps, and I could just see Iggy looking at him and trying to find a way to include him. And eventually, they did end up throwing the ball around because he just couldn't believe that this boy couldn't do something as simple as playing as playing soccer and I think that's really it sounds very banal very prosaic but it really affected affected him that was the moment that he understood what it means to be a refugee yes I, th I think so just the hardships that people the children sort of take it in their stride that the boy you know he I think if you told him uh in abstract or he'd read it in, in a newspaper article, he would have thought about the boy being in a hospital bed, being incredibly depressed. And, and you could see that this boy was still full of hope, still full of great good cheer. And in a way, that is one of the most painful things to see as a, as a parent is that children are always looking for the opportunity. They're, they are all still planning and hoping about the, you know, the, the future in the same way that, that he is on a day-to-day -day basis. They don't, um, they don't dwell on the hardship. And I think that that is one of the most moving things that I found, and it, it, yeah, it really did strike a chord with him. Did that experience change Iggy? Did he go back and he do doesn't talk about it to me? But children never do talk about those things to their parents. It's always when you overhear them telling somebody else. And those experiences sort of sit in the foundational aspects of their personalities, I think. And I don't try and separate the children from those experiences. Obviously, some of the more traumatic things, say, for example, going to Bangladesh, I, 
I didn't take the children on that mission because I knew I was going to encounter a lot of girls and women who had experienced great trauma, torture, hardship, rape, and, and they're things that perhaps you need to filter or the child your child needs to be older in order to un before they understand what those women have been have had taken away from them. But um, for him to experience the other children and see the profound generosity of these people, uh, I think it's um it's perhaps made him <laughs> slightly more generous. Do you, do you think you experience the situation differently seeing it through his eyes? Definitely, definitely. Um, and and I think it's simply myself being a mother, um, you then form a greater empathetic, immediate connection to the experience of uh, refugee mothers and what they will do, the lengths they will go to, to try and normalise their experience. Um as fragile as it is for, for their children. In a diary entry, I think it was after that visit to Jordan or, or one of the visits to the, the Middle East, you said, as a mother, I want my children to go down the compassionate path. Why is that important to you? I think, well, I think we're really at a fork in a road where everyone is um, so fed a discourse of fear, which makes us close up very quickly. And I think the compassionate path is the path of solution. And so, I'm, you know, just on a, on a daily basis with my children, if they're having an issue with someone who is acting out at school or you have, I try and get them to see things from their perspective, not just from their, you know, my own child's perspective so that they can try and understand the mind of a, of a bully or try and understand the mindset of somebody who is perhaps doing something that the, my own child perceives to be unjust or cruel or unfounded or unwarranted. Because it's if you try and understand someone else's position, you can work together to find a, a solution. So it doesn't always work <laughs> in our day-to-day -day lives. It's not perfect. But I think it's, um, you know, the, we're so, the refugee experience is we're being sold as the other experience. And there's so many um, points of similarity and I, I find that as a mother, and um, and so I, I try and encourage compassion in the children, particularly in boys. How about you? I mean, how is this experience of working for UNHCR, of visiting with refugees, has it altered the way you see things? It has been one of the, the great privileges of my life, actually. Uh, you know, I, I'm, as an actor, you're constantly, I see my role as an empathetic and compassionate one. You're always, you know, I'd never look for the points of similarity to a character and myself. I'm always looking for the points of, of, of difference. And it's certainly been that way, working with UNHCR, going into the field, but also reading things that, that refugees have, have written, whether it's um you know, first-person testament or whether it's uh, books that they, that they have uh, written or artwork. Children's artwork is profoundly revelatory, I, you know, I, I think. And I've realised, I think, how important hope is. And that has, I've, I've taken that into my, my own daily experience. It's been a, a privilege encountering those stories. And I think when you hear those stories, when you encounter the human face of 
of the um, you know the human detritus from the lack of political will that seems to be around the refugee situation and global displacement, you feel impelled to communicate that. And so I think it's it has altered my day to day experience in a very very deep way. I it's it's like the um, you know the sounds that a dog hears. I feel I I can hear higher pitch noises now. You know in terms of suffering and you learn to read behind what is what you read in the, the newspaper or, or or online but you also learn to read behind perhaps the fearful responses that people have to the stories that they're being sold about um, human displacement and and I think that's what we have to really try and address because behind that is fear and lack of information I want to come back to that, but first on the the subject of hope, were you struck that this was something that refugees retained, uh, even though they were living in really, as you describe, very uh, difficult circumstances mm. in exile? Yes, when when we were at Azraq, there were, I, I encountered a, a school teacher, a young school teacher, whose child would now be three, but um, their their child had was a month old. And I went into uh, – it was incredibly hot. I mean, it was desert. And, and you know, they'd made their tents. No their trees, tents, right? No I trees, been there not nary a tree, nary a bush. You know, you're thinking, how do they even get water? But they, he was in – he and his um, wife had made a – uh, a home out of their their um, tent that was provided by UNHCR, and he took me into a courtyard, and he had planted a little tree for his daughter. He would walk for a long time every day to get enough water to to feed this tree, and it was little. It was like the the rose that the little prince had had planted on the moon. And just the the love that he was pouring into this tree and he wanted it to grow and he knew that he would probably be in the camp for quite some time and he was talking about how this tree would grow and it would shade his daughter and it made me want to weep uh, because I thought it's it was like the quintessential image of hope that a father has for his daughter that he wanted her to play under there and and and, and also the the way he was turning his own he had his own hopes of ambitions of being a scientist like Marie Curie was his um, great sort of shining light he wanted to be a scientist and he had an incredible mathematical mind and he it's very difficult for children to get education obviously when they're displaced um, refugee children you you want them to have access to educational resources so that eventually one day when they can return, as they all want to do to their homelands, they can rebuild Syria or wherever they have been displaced from. And he knew he himself that his, he couldn't realise because of his own displacement, his own um, desire to be a mathematical scientific genius. So he was taking every waking moment when he wasn't watering the plant and um, tending to his family to... Um, give maths lessons to, to girls and boys so that they could keep their own minds ticking over so that they their mathematical brains could be fed. He was very conscious of the next generation not losing access to their own intelligence and their own sense of their own futures, which I found very, you know, it was a great act of hope, but a concrete um, he wanted to concretely it's build not those an bridges. Internal thing. It was, it, no, it was he, an action that an action that and symbolized think, oh, yes, so much I, hope. Yeah. And I think we can all sit, you know, late at night feeling despair. Our hope can very, very quickly turn to despair. But there are positive things that we can all do to keep that hope alive. You know, whether it's watering a plant or whether it's we've all got skills 
Um, we've all got networks. We've all got the power of language and we all have hearts. And I think that the greatest act of hope, I think, at the moment in the world, you know, whether you're thinking about global displacement or, um, you know, the, the nuclear rearmament or climate change, we have to keep in the minds of our children the actively thinking about what can we do on a, on a very small daily basis? What can you do with the skills you already have as a, as a 10-year-old? to do something to change the mind or challenge the, um, the prejudices that you encounter in the playground when, when, when they're talking about um, uh, children who have fled South Sudan or, or you know, who is, or the Congo or, or Syria. You know, Iggy, you have been to the field, so challenge that in the playground. In that context, then, I mean, you've, you've been to many refugee situations now in this role. What frustrates you most about seeing the way, the conditions, the way people are living... Well, it's it's the I'm going to Bangladesh um, in advance of the last March uh, in 2018, in advance of the seeing the monsoon preparations that were taking place with UNHCR and their and and their partners, and the incredible generosity of the Bangladeshi government and people who have very little themselves, opening their their borders and their their land and their space to to provide um, you know shelter to the the human tsunami that was coming um, across from from Myanmar, just how fragile their their day to day existence was. You know how with just um, a heavy rain, everything that they're building could be washed away in 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 one mudslide, and then you return and um, you'll encounter at a dinner party someone talking about how you know really it was just it was it's all a bit too difficult to do something about it. I, I find that very. It's it's when you return home and see the um, the hard heartedness of, of of people. Not all people, by or, the way. Is it? I mean, hard heartedness, or is it indifference, or is it? There's this kind of condition which social scientists call psychic numbing. They just feel like the problem is too big, and they don't know what they can do. Yes, it's the flip side of there, but for the grace of God, go I, isn't it? Is that I've got to protect what I have. But you know, it's it's the I, you know, and I've realised this, you know, as as a mother, when you have, go from having one child to two children, you think, well, I did. I thought, gosh, I've I love this first child so much. How can I possibly channel as much love into the second child? I just my I haven't got any more love. But as soon as the child is born, you realise that as soon as you experience a profound love, or you you do something that's generous. You, it's like the Grinch. Your heart does grow, <laughs> and you ha- you have a, you find greater reser- reserves and greater um, reserves of love and of energy. The only way to live, I think, and it's part, maybe it's part of the reason why I wanted to be an actor, is you you are changed and you grow through encountering difference. And it's when you shut down that membrane between you and what you perceive to be different and therefore threatening, um, you you atrophy as a person. And and so I, um, I I think that's what I love about the theatrical experience is that you you open up every night to a set of uh, a new set of people and you, you you're in a conversation and that this is a conversation. It's not a monologue, it's a conversation. And um, has yeah. has this changed the way you approach theatre or your your acting as an artist in any way? Yes, well, I think you always grow through through your experiences, and I've always seen art as being a, a a way in which it's a it's a provocation where you you ask questions, and therefore try and open up people's 
to, to ask different questions, I think. We tend to ask ourselves just one or two questions that are, are very close to the communities and the experiences in, in, in which we live. And it's always the things, I think, that I find the most difficult or most confronting or most repugnant or most brutal in, in art that I then think about the longest. And I think the more you you think about things, the more questions you begin to ask. It's a more rich way to live yeah, But you life. also created art around the <clears throat> refugee cause. You helped organize the reading of Jennifer Toxic's poem, What They Took With Them. How can works of art like this perhaps help solve some of the big intractable problems of the world. Yes, well, that, that poem was actually read by uh, a group of actors here at the National Theatre. A lot of different voices. It's a very, very interesting poem. Flag, flag. National flag. Flash drive, laptop, phone. Mobile. Phone number, phone number, phone number. SIM card. Spare one. Phone. Phone. Smartphone with Skype and FaceTime. Headphones. Charger. Charger. Overseas adapter. Whenever we've read it in public, people are always really moved by it because of its its relentless rhythm and what the poem details it's called what they took with them a list and it is uh, a list of things that people took when they fled uh, and it can be as simple as a toothbrush or food for a bottle for the baby or a passport house keys house keys house keys house keys to a house that no longer exists but the things a mobile phone because that was one thing you know an answer to your question before i remember saying hearing someone say in a cafe they were talking about um their their own iphone and how important it was to them and they were saying you know how expensive they are and that people you know these refugees have really expensive phones and if they can afford a phone like that I mean well why should I be giving them money and you think well no a phone is not just a receptacle for getting texts and being you know you're seeing your Instagram feed when I went to Azarak camp there were a whole lot of people along the line of fence young young boys and girls. I thought, what are they doing? What are they looking at? Wow, this must, this camp must be really fascinating. And I got inside and realised they were trying to get onto the Wi-Fi to use WhatsApp because that it is a way for them to stay connected to the people, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their children, that they don't know. They're back in Syria. They're back in Syria. Right. It's also... Or uh, have maybe have moved on yes, somewhere. And, and so it's a way of maintaining connection, which is so vital but it's also it's a receptacle for photographs and so and you know you see people they'll show you pictures of their children you'll be sitting with them on the you know on a dirt floor in a in a tent and they will show you a picture of their brother and childhood photos and you can see the longing in their face to the memory of that is so important and that memory is what keeps them going day to day and so a phone is really important so this list this poem details all of these lists and it gets people thinking about well if I had to flee with maybe only 90 seconds I can hear the bombs coming or you know you have to run what would I take with me sometimes it's a headscarf you know sometimes it's a it's a piece of jewelry it's a wedding ring have you, know, you thought about what you would take with you? Well, apart from my, from my children, I think it would it would have to be. You'd, you'd think it was it would be documents, 
But sometimes you don't even have time to find those documents because, of course, we all put our documents, our identities, in very, very safe places. And those safe places are often hidden under floorboards or in a safe. And, and, and so often what you have time to get is a child's toy. And so you end up with something very impractical. And then when you read an article or a blog or a tweet that talks in disparaging terms about how these refugees can't self-resource, why didn't they take their passport with them? How could they be so foolish as to not take their documents? Or why did they take their house keys? You know, it's, it's like, well, please think, if you had 60 seconds, you may not even be able to get your child it breaks my heart, you know, when, when people, it just breaks my heart, you know, the judgment. You've got to place yourself in that, in, you know, those people's experience. It is heartbreaking. Sorry. It's, <laughs> it is. I know, I feel it myself uh, all the time. I mean, these, it's tough listening to these stories um, and it putting is, yourself... It really is. Yeah. It really is. And, you know, of course, not everyone can go into the field. But, you know, that's where, you know, talking about what keeps you awake at night, it's often when you're lying in bed and allow yourself just to think about someone else's experience and allow that to filter into your dreams. And then somehow, maybe in that twinning, in that, in that imaginative dream space as you're falling asleep, maybe those points of connection can be made. You know, just allow yourself to think, if my child was on a boat, you know, what drives a person to, to, to get on a boat? Don't judge that. Place yourself in, in that impossible scenario. You know, there's, I do think a lot about that Warson Shire poem, as well about nobody leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark and it really does talk about what drives people to to make those impossible decisions I was sitting in a community centre in in Lebanon with a group of people who were designated community leaders because of course as we were saying earlier there are no camps there so they're in urban settings and quite displaced so they would identify someone to come in and talk about how important it was to register births because, of course, many children are born without papers, without documents. And so this particular meeting was held in the community centre so that they could go back to their own individual communities and say, register the births. It's a difficult process in, in Lebanon, but it's very important so that your child has documents. So when you do return home, they have a nationality and identity and therefore access to education, to medical services. Because, of course, when you're stateless, when you don't have those identities, you don't have, you don't have access to those very, very basic things. So I went round the room and, and asked all of these people, uh, Syrians, refugees, what their professions were, doctors, pharmacists, architects, lawyers, teachers. Many of them were very highly educated people. And one woman, uh, an architect who had three children, was saying, I just wanted to, to flag that I won't be here next week to follow up on this. And we asked why. And she said, oh, because I'm getting on a boat with my children to uh, to Greece to, to try and meet my husband in Sweden. And... The room fell silent and they said, you know how dangerous that is. And she says, I have no choice. My children have been out of school. I have no choice. How did and you this, react to that? I didn't know what to say. Um, I, you know, I think the, the people from UNHCR 
then was speaking to her and counselling her and trying to, to come up with other strategies for her. But she literally, an educated woman who was fully, fully aware of the risks, knew she couldn't return, her children were in limbo and her husband was in another country on the other side of the world and she was prepared to take that risk. And often people who get, get on boats, it's not the first point of trauma They've experienced starvation. They have been shot at. They have travelled, you know, miles. They're without any medical aid. Their children are, you know, at their wits' end, already traumatised when they get on the boat. These are not ill-informed, unintelligent, reckless individuals. They are doing this because they are thinking profoundly about their children's future. They are the people who are being washed up on the beaches. And it's think of, just think about that as you're drifting off to sleep, you know. No, it's, it's also maybe back to that uh, hope when there is no hope, where exile is only about survival. Mm. It's just so compelling. It's the impermanence. Yeah. You know, I see that with, with friends and colleagues who have had, you know, long-term unemployment. You know, what happens to your to your pride and your sense of self and your being able to plan, you know, not only for yourself but for your family. It's very, very hard to keep that alive and that's akin to the refugee yeah, experience. It's human that, nature to want to just keep Yes, yeah, so you move day to day and you yeah. can do that for weeks, you can do that for months, you can do that even for a few years but when you... When you have limbo children. is very yeah. painful place to it's be. It's a very, very difficult place to be. Yeah, yeah. I just want to come back to that concept you flagged when you spoke the first stanza mm. of some Shire's poem, and that is about home. Mm. Have you thought differently about home since you've started encountering refugees and heard their stories? Yes, I have. I've been so moved by how quickly the refugees I've met will go to make any shelter feel like home and that home is so much about it's so much about family and that it's not it's not about objects it's actually not about a building it's about a spirit and it's about a coming together of people and that I'd met so many refugee families who were cobbled together and uh, a home also doesn't exist in isolation it exists within a community and so it was a series of homes and how much the refugees were helping each other. The newest influx of refugees were being scaffolded, not only by UNHCR and their partners, by, but, but by the refugees who had been in the camps for several years because they knew intimately the experience. So it's about the village. It was not so much about the, the physical environment, but, but about the spirit within the tent or the building or whatever it was that the, the home was. And very much linked to that, you've also taken a particular interest in people who are stateless. Yes, I, I met several and, and they all responded in quite different ways. I think it's obviously very difficult in quite masculine cultures, um, which culture isn't masculine, let's face it. <laughs> there are very few matriarchies in the world, um, but very difficult for men, you know, when they're unable to confer nationality onto their children and frustrating for mothers when they're not able to because of the cultures that they find themselves Which in. Which is the bigger phenomenon. Yes, of right. course. And it's very frustrating, I think, f for me um, and I, I suppose for a lot of people uh, working with stateless people that it's often just a very few simple words in a constitution that need to be changed in order to allow a mother to confer nationality upon her upon her children. But I met an extraordinary girl in Lebanon who was so bright, her English was extraordinary, and she wanted to be a baby doctor. 
I think she might have been nine, and uh, her father had an incredible voice and he had had a disease that meant that his limbs were atrophying so he didn't have any legs and his arms were in peril. And, uh, and she was wonderful and still spoke with great hope about wanting to become a baby doctor and she was so intelligent and she was still trying to keep up her education, was voracious about what she was reading and I was sitting in this very, very, uh, it was a bedroom but really it was just a closet with very little air and she was stateless. It's very, very difficult uh, as a parent when you can see a child with immense talent and also she didn't want to become a model or a movie star, she wanted to do something to help people and that is that is so frequent actually in not only in the stateless children that I've met but in refugee children generally is that when you ask them what they want to be they want to be teachers they want to be doctors they want to be lawyers they want to be engineers they're all professions that are about rebuilding helping and giving back but it's very hard I think statelessness um, well I know it is on children because it's a, a major impediment upon them actually forming deep roots into any culture, the temporary country that they find themselves in, or into um, their ability to return. Because if you are stateless and don't have an identity, don't have a paper, papers to prove who you are, then um, your access to very basic life-giving services is impossible. Yeah, which most people take for granted. Yes, yeah. yes. And of course, a lot of refugees themselves are stateless. Yeah, exactly. So does the issue of, or your experience with statelessness have some kind of connection for you as an actor? Because statelessness does have a lot to do with identity. Yes, it does. It's, it's, it has everything to do with being able to prove uh, your identity. I mean, as an actor, you're constantly trying to form a sort of a psychic as well as a concrete physical manifestation of another human being and um, you start with an outline and then as you move further and further along the rehearsal process you fill in the outline so that the person becomes a, a full living breathing person that other people can truly believe in but when you're stateless you don't actually get to become anything more than an outline. And so it's very hard for the, the person to to develop, I think, a deep, true, rich sense of themselves when they can't even get to first base to connect the dots. It's a bit like those children's drawings when you've got a series of numbers, but you can't get to number 19, let alone number 47, to complete the picture. And it's very hard to maintain hope when you can't prove who you are. I think it takes a great toll on the person's spirit. And as an actor, I think you're trying to create and fill in that spirit. Um, but as a stateless person, that spirit is, you don't want that to be extinguished simply because of um, an article in the Constitution that won't be, won't be changed. You know, words are very important. I know that firsthand as an actor, the language around which we discussed, not only the refugee issue, but the words that we can simply change in, in our uh, parliamentary documents, they're very simple. Um, but they're very, very important. You come from Australia. I um, do. Yes. <laughs> it's been very much in the news um, <coughs> yes. related to treatment of, of refugees. Mm -hmm. um, but have you yourself had any criticism for your decision to work on behalf and for the cause of refugees? I think when you're in the public eye, um, 
if you step into an arena that is seen to be political, you're told you're um, working outside your pay grade or you're not an expert. And I think as a goodwill ambassador, I am certainly not an expert, but I'm a witness. And I think that the hardest thing, the hardest hurdle to overcome is to completely and constantly reinforce that the global displacement crisis at its very heart is not political. It's human. And my job is an empathetic one. It's a human job to describe the human experience in order to evoke an empathetic reaction in an audience. And um, I don't see my role as a goodwill ambassador for UNHCR as being any different. But one's contribution, I suppose, to that discourse can be described and sidelined and, and criticised as being entering into a political arena. But I don't see that as being my job. I'm very full of shame in my own country when it has been so positively built. And the, the national character has always been seen to be as um, open and welcoming and um, outgoing and um, generous, that those adjectives are, are perhaps less able to be used en masse for Australia's woeful treatment of refugees, and particularly offshore, in the last decade. Um, so it's, it's something Growing I, up, you experienced something quite different. I think you... Had totally. Quite... When I was at school, the brand Australia was always um, multiculturalism. And it's you know, and, and it wasn't just a brand; it was actually totally. Truly, right? And and you know, and it starts. It started with food. You know, what do you think about <laughs> the food that my grandmother cooked? Because I grew up with my grandmother. You know, was mashed potatoes and things boiled within within an inch of their lives. And then suddenly, you were eating Vietnamese food. But also prior to that, you were eating Italian food. You were eating Greek food. And so I think it's just on a simple day-to-day -day cultural level what, what refugees have contributed to, to Australia. It's, it's massive. There are so many different cultures in, in Australia. Why is it now that we're, we're thinking of shutting the doors and, and changing our, our national character? It's bewildering to me. Is there anything that you're particularly proud of uh, that you, know, you feel like you've maybe changed some minds or some attitudes or even just one person's view? Um. I think I'm proudest when I hear my children speak to their friends when they know I'm not listening. Because I remember, it's, it, this is a very sideline thing to talk about, but, you know, everyone, no one smokes anymore, although everyone started vaping, which is even worse. But I remember um, when the kids started school, there was this huge campaign in schools about how terrible smoking was for you. And what the children did is they went home and shamed their parents into stopping smoking. And I, you know, just hearing the children wanting to talk about that in in schools, I'm very proud that they're trying to change their own networks. I think because it's oftentimes you can feel that you're you're preaching to the converted, but it's also I um, I feel buoyed up by the amount of actors, of writers, musicians, people who are dealing with. I suppose it's the fringes of our imagination. That's where the artists work. They, they think about what's coming next. Um, the amount of artists who have been curious about the work of UNHCR and wanting to know about uh, my experience in the field and what can they do to help. Because I feel that they, unless we talk about these things, not in an agit prop way, 
but in, in whatever way feels natural to those people, then it's going to qu- very quickly slide off the, the human end of the, the conversation because the political end of the conversation is, as you say, very, very loud and toxic. And, and, toxic. and it, it doesn't need to be because there are very simple things, very simple barriers that can be broken down in just in whatever way feels natural for people to express that. And so I feel very buoyed up by the creative community you know, who I think who are quite fearless. I mean, look, you have to be a moron to get up on stage and, <laughs> and cavort in front of other people. So your skin is quite thick. But also as an artist, I think you the membrane between your own experience and the experience of others has to be quite quite thin. So it's um yeah, I've been I've been very buoyed up by that, I think. So what do you tell your friends, your family, your circles when they ask you, What can I do to help? Well, f- First of all, I give them the most, the most enormous hug and, then, and I say, what is it that bothers you most about the global displacement crisis? What is it that touches you most about the refugee experience? What is it that you've read lately or heard lately that has driven you to ask, what can you do to help? Because it's when you find your own point of personal connection that you can work out what bit of the puzzle that you can help to put a piece in to, com- to complete the picture. And... Um, I had friends in a small country town in Australia and they held this feast in the middle of a street to raise money where they had a whole lot of different, you know, big, big, long table, you know, that was a whole lot of different um, types of foods, you know. And so the conversation through food, of course, went to the refugee experience. Sometimes the thing that bothers them most is uh, a certain word that has been using. I said, well, next time you overhear someone saying that, you say... I just heard you say that that word. What, what what do you mean when you say that? And and ask them with a desire to genuinely know the answer, because the thing is, often when you feel when you want to help around an, an issue, our voices get really shrill because we panic that we're going to be misunderstood, and an argument which is where we don't want to head, is just, it's as Rachel Cusk says, it's such a brilliant line, an argument is an emergency of self-definition. And that what you want to do is you're not trying to define yourself when you're asking someone a question or challenging their assumptions. You're trying to work out what is it about themselves that they're so busy, ready to define. And if you break down that self-definition and work out what they're worried about, then you can find a group definition. So I, I ask people, what's your skill base? What, what are you good at? Okay, well, use what you're good at. If your skill set is working with children, maybe you could you could do that. We all have a skill set as as small as it may be. Maybe you're you're very good at writing, or maybe you're good at making people laugh. You know, because laughter is a great tonic, as we all know. And there's so much laughter too. That's the thing: is you sit down with with refugees and you get them talking about where they came from, or their own childhoods, and or their favourite baklava shop. And all of a sudden their eyes light up and you're laughing together. And um, so it's not always about preaching to people. And it's not all despair. No, it's not all despair. And as we say, you know, hope is really important. And it's hope in the people who are in the privileged countries as well. You know what? If you give a little, you don't need to be despairing that you're going to have less. Because by giving, you actually receive. How do refugees react to you when you go visit them? And how do you approach them? Well, of course, I think like a lot of people, I initially thought, what can I do to help? I'm so 
privileged. I'm a white woman who works in the film industry. What on earth can I say to these these people who have gone through such terrible journeys and torment and suffering? And and then, you know, you think, my gosh, that woman's she's got a one earring. Why is she not wearing two? I say, that's a really beautiful earring. And then and then you'll you'll find a very banal point of connection and then you'll find out why she's lost the other earring is because she had to give it away to pay someone to get across a border and then you've all, you're already into a dialogue uh, with them. Sometimes, you know, it depends, it depends on the experience of the woman. You know, one woman uh, could see me walking in and we had, we had a videographer with us and so she was very suspicious and she pointed at me and she said, I want to talk to you. And she said, why are you here? What do you want? And she was quite defensive. And then I had to tell her that I was an actor and then I was here to listen. And then I, I mean, back in my country, I was very distressed the way um, her own experience and people like her, the way it was being talked about. And so I really wanted to hear her story so that I could go back and I could talk to people in my own community to tell them the real story. And then her suspicion started to dissipate and we were already in a conversation. And I think... Yeah, so it's, sometimes it, it's with trepidation and sometimes you're met with someone who just wants to talk. You know, sometimes they see you as being a life raft. Sometimes they, you know, it's simple as sitting down and holding somebody's hand. You know, human touch is a very, it's a very important thing. Kate, thanks so much for being with us here today and sharing your thoughts on how to make the world a better place for refugees. Thank you for listening to Awake at Night. We'll be back soon with more incredible and inspiring stories from the field. People working to do some good in this world. To find out more about the series and to see pictures of Kate in the field, do visit unhcr.org slash awakeatnight. Find us on Facebook at UNHCR. And on Twitter, we're at refugees. And I'm at Melissa R. Fleming. You can spread the word about the series using the hashtag Awake at Night. Do subscribe to Awake at Night wherever you get your podcasts. And please do take the time to review us. It helps more people find the show. Thanks to the fantastic design and studio teams here at UNHCR. And to my producers, Bethany Bell and Laura Sheeter of Chalk and Blade. The sound design was by Pascal Wise, and the original music for this podcast was written and performed by Nadine Shaw and produced by Ben Hillier. This was the last episode of Season 2. I have been so inspired and moved by the people who have shared their stories with me, and I hope you have been too. Thanks to them, and do join us soon for Season 3.